Sometimes things can look good on the outside, but they're not. Like Zumbo's Just Desserts the other night. Who's been watching Zumbo's Just Desserts? Come on, own up. No one, just me. Oh, dear. It's a really, like, B-grade lame version of MasterChef, but it's a bit more fun and kidsy. There's this guy, and he spends four hours making this massive um, cake with pavlova on the outside and all these layers on the inside. And right at the end, when they're about to judge his beautiful pavlova cake, and they cut inside it, it all just oozes out this big raspberry mess, and it is all raw. Looked beautiful on the outside, not on the inside. Or like a car, you know, that looks so good on the outside, no scratches, beautiful paintwork, it's all straight, but the engine's no good. Or it's all full of rust. Or like the kitchen in the house that I grew up in, down at Yenda, where termites got into the woodwork in the kitchen. And they must have been there for years, but when we discovered them, all the woodwork was completely eaten out and hollow on the inside. But on the outside, still looked perfect. Beautiful paint, shiny, good on the outside, not good on the inside. Now, we started to think about that idea, good on the outside, not on the inside. Last week in 1 Samuel chapter 8, you might remember there, God's people were asking for a king. And it looked good on the outside, didn't it? In fact, God had promised that he wanted his people to have a king. But when you looked on the inside, when you looked at their hearts, they were actually rejecting God as their king. And we're going to see that same idea today in a slightly different way, though. Today, we meet the king that they asked for. We meet King Saul, and he looks good on the outside. The problem is, though, he's missing the most important thing that a king needs to have. He doesn't have a heart for the kingdom of God. And that's basically how these chapters go today. It starts off looking at the outside of Saul. He looks great. But the more we read on, the more we find out about him, the more disappointing it gets. And you can see that on your outline. Uh, we've got a new king, a disappointing king. Let's pick it up from 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. That was just read by Robert earlier. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, verse 2. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man, without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. So here we meet Saul, and on the outside he looks impressive, doesn't he? He is without equal. He's taller than anyone else. And he comes from a good family. A Benjaminite is his father, a man of standing. And that's not all. He doesn't just look good. He's a good kid. Look at verse 3. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. And then as we read on, Saul is off going from um, locality to locality in search of these donkeys for his dad. How refreshing is that? If you remember back in 1 Samuel so far, Eli's sons, the priest, his sons had no respect for their father. They were evil. Even Samuel's son, Samuel the great prophet, his sons had no respect for their father. Finally, a son who does what he's told. Pay attention, sons. This is not a small thing. He's out looking for his father's donkeys. 
He only gets so far, though. He's been out looking for the donkeys for a little while, and he wants to turn back because he's been gone a while and Dad might be getting worried about him. The servant, on the other hand, he wants to push on. Who's in the right here? We're not sure, are we? Verse 5. When they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. What happens next is a series of coincidences. They all start with this little phrase, look, and I think it's meant to be kind of, whoa, look, look at just what happened. Oh, how about that? One coincidence after the next, they all start with the phrase look, and they all piled up one after the other, all leading to Saul meeting none other than Samuel himself, the prophet who we've been hearing about for the first eight chapters of this book. The first coincidence is in verse 6. They just happen to come to a town where there is a man of God. Okay, verse 6. This is Saul's wanting to go back home. But the servant replied, Look, yeah, how about that? In this town, there's a man of God. He's highly respected, and everything he says come true, comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. Now, Saul's not sure about this, not because he wants to get, just because he wants to get back to his dad, but they don't have any money, and it would be a good thing to pay this man of God some money. But just then, the servant happens to find some silver. Verse 8, look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. What's the chances? I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us what way to take. So they head into the city. And would you believe it, just as they're entering the city, they bump into this man of God. Verse 14. They went up to the town and as they were entering it, look. Now, I say with the word look, it's not in the NIV Bibles. I think they've probably decided there's too many looks in here so far, so they're going to drop this one out. But it's there again. If you've got another translation like, you know, ESV or NASB, it it puts the word in there like it should. Look at that. What do you know? Verse 14, there was Samuel coming towards them on his way up to the high place. You'd almost think someone had planned this, all these coincidences. Saul's randomly wandering after the countryside looking for donkeys and he just happens to get to the very town where Samuel is. Well, of course, in verse 15, we find out this is no coincidence at all. God has planned for all this to happen. In fact, he's even told Samuel this the day before. Verse 15. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow... I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. This young bloke looking for donkeys, he's going to be the new king of Israel. More than just that, though, God is going to use him to rescue the Israelites. Look at verse 16, the second half. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. Now that's interesting because after last week when the people rejected God in asking for a king, you'd almost think God would just abandon them, but no, he still is going to use this king to rescue them. 
So after all this chasing around after the donkeys, uh, it's actually all been planned by God. Saul is about to meet the great prophet Samuel. It's a bit strange, though, because when they meet, Saul doesn't recognise him. Verse 18. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? Seer's just an old name for prophet. I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and tell you all that is on your heart. Now that's a little bit odd, I think. I mean, back in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognised that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. That's what we learned. All Israel knew about Samuel. He's now been leader of Israel for 11 years. I mean, how long do we have a prime minister for in Australia? 11 years. You'd think people would know him by now. And Saul doesn't even recognise him. It might be nothing. It's hard to put ourselves back in that situation. They didn't have TV. They didn't have photos or Facebook. But the way the story is told, it is drawing our attention to the fact that Saul didn't recognise Samuel. Why? Maybe it's the first hint that Saul really isn't interested in the things of God. He doesn't even recognise the most famous, the only prophet of God in Israel. What do you think? Not sure? File it away for now. We'll we'll keep reading. Because there's more things in this chapter that cause us to have disappointments with Saul. In fact, there's three more. The first one involves a Philistine garrison, okay, an outpost of Philistines, some Philistines who've come into Israel territory. So the first involves a Philistine garrison. The second involves a saying about Saul that started going around. And the third involves some luggage, some baggage. Okay? Three disappointments. Put them all together and Saul is not really king material. But let's look, look at them one at a time. You can see them on the outline. The first one involves a Philistine garrison. Chapter 10, verse 1. Saul and Samuel get together for a big banquet and Samuel anoints Saul as prince over Israel. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? Now, this is a big moment. Saul will be the first ever king over the nation of Israel. I wonder what will happen next. What happens next is that Saul is given his first task as king. What will happen is there will be a series of signs that will come upon him, and then he's told to do something. The signs are described in verses 2 to 6, and they're very complex. Like, just, I'm thinking that's to show that this is all from God so clearly. He will meet two men near Rachel's tomb. They will tell him that his donkeys have been found. Then he'll meet three men, and then they will give him two loaves of bread, and so on. All these signs leading up to verse 5. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. Some Philistines, the enemies of God's people, the ones that Saul's going to rescue them from. Sounds exciting. Sounds like there could be a battle coming. 
Then Saul will meet some prophets, verse 6. The spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power. You'll prophesy with them. You'll be changed into a different person. And then after Saul has received the spirit, this is what he's commanded to do. Verse 7. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Sounds interesting. Do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. What does it mean? Well, let's read on and let's see what he does. Let's see what it is that his hand finds to do. Saul leaves Samuel after he's been anointed and every single one of those prophecies, those signs, they all come true. Verse 9, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart and all these signs were fulfilled that day. Okay, they meet the two men, they meet the three men, he gets the loaves, they meet the band of prophets, the spirit comes upon Saul, he prophesies, and then after all those signs are fulfilled, what happens? What does he do? He does nothing. Nothing happens. Nothing at all. Verse 13. After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. And Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, where have you been? Looking for the donkeys, he said. But when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Look, we might not be 100% sure about what do whatever your hand finds to do means, but I don't think it means go and talk to your uncle about donkeys. I think we're expecting something a bit more exciting than that. What was Saul meant to do? The last time that phrase came up in the Bible, do whatever your hand finds to do, it was in the book of Judges, just before this one, in Judges 9.33, where Gideon's son, Abimelech, was told, do whatever your hand finds to do, and he went and smashed the enemy to pieces. I wonder if that's what Saul's meant to do. I mean, God raises up Saul to rescue Israel from the Philistines. We saw that in verse 16. That's the purpose. God leads him to a Philistine outpost. God puts his spirit on Saul. God says, do whatever your hand finds to do. And the best Saul can come up with is he goes and has a chat with his uncle about the lost donkeys. I wonder if he was meant to attack the Philistines. Well, if we were reading through the book of Judges, which came before Samuel, that is exactly what we would know he should be doing. In Judges 3.10, when Othniel was given the Spirit of God, he went and he attacked the Mesopotamian army and he defeated them. In Judges 6.34, when the Spirit came upon Gideon, he defeated the Midianite army. In Judges 11.29, when the Spirit came upon Jephthah, he attacked the Ammonite army. In Judges 15.14, when the Spirit came upon Samson, he attacked the Philistines and defeated them. Here, when the Spirit comes upon Saul, the Philistines are right there. He does nothing. I think it's meant to be a bit disappointing. Look, yeah, sure, Saul's a great bloke. He respects his father, but he doesn't seem to have it on his heart to rescue the Israelites. He doesn't seem to have a heart for the kingdom of God. In fact, in verse 16, when he's chatting to his uncle... About, about the donkeys, he doesn't want to even mention this business about the kings. It points that out to us. Look at verse 15. Saul's uncle said, tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul replied, 
He assured us that the donkeys had been found, but he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. Now, just in case you think I'm being a bit harsh on poor old Saul, there's two more things that now go on in the passage to make sure that we don't miss this. This is the right way to read it. We are meant to be starting to be disappointed with Saul. Because the first one is about a saying that starts going round. Look back at verse 11. Back when the Spirit came upon Saul and he started prophesying, verse 11. When all those who had formerly known him, that's Saul, saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, what is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man who lived there answered, and who's their father? So it became saying, is Saul also among the prophets? Now that's not a compliment, okay? This isn't like, isn't Saul great, he's a prophet. No, this is an insult. This would be like someone seeing Malcolm Turnbull next to a circus with a clown suit on, juggling, and it became a proverb, is Malcolm among the clowns? Now, we know that's the way we're meant to take it because this exact saying that had been passed down comes up again in 1 Samuel 19.24. And there, when they're saying, is Saul among the prophets, Saul's gone mad He takes off all these clothes, he's stark naked, he lies down prophesying all night and they say, is Saul among the prophets? They're making fun of him and it was a saying that was handed down from generation, is Saul among the prophets? It's a taunt. Saul should be out fighting the Philistines, he should be the king. Instead, he's hanging around, dancing on the side of the mountain with the prophets, talking about donkeys. Now, in case you think I'm still being a bit harsh... The final scene in chapter 11 is a complete joke. We can't help but actually just be laughing at Saul. Samuel announces the new king. It's a pretty exciting turnout. Israel are all there. It's a bit like kind of um, watching the lotto results or something because it's, everyone's sort of coming out one by one and they're, they're waiting to see who will be the king. Pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 20. So this is the the now public declaration before all Israel of their new king. When Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. That's Saul's tribe. Verse 21. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was chosen. That's Saul's clan. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. Saul is missing. I wonder where he is. Maybe he's decided to go and fight the Philistines after all. Where is he? Verse 22. So they inquired further of the law. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the baggage. It's a, it's a bit of a joke, it's a bit of an embarrassment. It kind of leaves us rolling around the floor in stitches. The problem is Saul's not a stand-up comedian. We're not meant to be laughing. He's meant to be God's king. And here he is, hiding among the luggage. He might be a nice bloke. He, might, he could be farmer of the year material. He loves looking after donkeys. 
He's not king material. And yet look at how Israel respond to Saul. They ran and bought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king. They love him. Because he is exactly the kind of king that they asked for. He's a king like the other nations have. He looks good on the outside. He's tall. He's impressive. But he's not interested in the things of God. Which is exactly what they wanted in a king. We saw that last week. Do you know what the name Saul means? Because often in the Bible, names are important. Saul means asked for. In other words, this is the king you asked for. He's not the best king. He's not the king you needed. He's the king you asked for. He's the king you asked for when you were rejecting God as your king. And at this point, we're meant to be starting to feel disappointed with Saul. We want him to be so much more. We want him to be the king of Genesis 49, who will bring about God's blessings to the entire world. We want him to be that king of Deuteronomy 17, who will meditate on God's word. We want him to be the king who will not just lead the nation of Israel to defeat the Philistines, but to follow God. We want Saul to be all of that, but he's not. And look, today's just the start. As we read on, it will get worse. Not only will he disappoint us, he will disobey God in more ways than one. And eventually he'll be kicked out as king. God will just have had enough. And then we'll have to wait another thousand years before a king comes along who doesn't disappoint. After a long series of kings who all disappoint, we finally get to a king who is good. And that's where we come into it because... That king is Jesus. And through Jesus, God started a kingdom that's bigger than just the the nation of Israel. God started a kingdom that includes us, you and I. And way back here in 1 Samuel, what is happening with Saul, all these disappointments, they are there to help us appreciate Jesus. Because Jesus is everything that Saul wasn't. Sure, Saul might have been handsome, Taller than everyone else in Israel, son of a nobleman, but he didn't have on his heart the kingdom of God. Jesus, on the other hand, nothing about his appearance that we would notice him or esteem him. Son of a carpenter, but he had a heart for the kingdom of God. When he was only 12 years old, there is Jesus in the temple asking questions about the kingdom of God. What did Saul do when he was anointed with the Spirit of God the first time? He did nothing. What did Jesus do when he was anointed with the Spirit of God the first time? He goes into the desert and he does battle with Satan. He eats nothing for 40 days and 40 nights. He's tempted by Satan and he wins. He goes straight out to fight the enemy. When Saul was anointed, he said nothing about the kingdom to his uncle. 
When Jesus is anointed, he stands up in the temple and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and proclaim release to the captives. And then he went around preaching the kingdom of God. And when people tried to stop him, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom. That is why I was sent. Saul bumbled round, not knowing what to do. With Jesus, it says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus was on a mission to head to Jerusalem where he was going to die. And three times Jesus predicted that was going to happen to him. Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. He says, we're going to Jerusalem and I'll be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn me to death and will hand me over to the Gentiles. They will mock me, spit on me, flog me and kill me. He was going to Jerusalem to sacrifice his life for the sake of the kingdom of God. He came to rescue us, God's people, not from the Philistines, from our sin. Here was a king who would do anything for his people. And as he wrestled in the garden the night before his death, he said to his father, Not my will, father, but yours be done. Saul was the king they wanted. They cheered, Long live the king! With Jesus, they cheered, crucify, crucify. And as he was crucified, the sign above Jesus said, the king of the Jews. And he was. He was the true king of God's people. He was the king who gave his life for his people. Even as they rejected him and poked fun at him. So look, if by the end of 1 Samuel 9 and 10 we're feeling disappointed because King Saul wasn't all that we hoped for, by the end of the Gospels we are blown away because Jesus is all that we could ever hope for and more. And so this morning, look, I don't want, to, I don't want anything more for us this morning than simply to be reminded of that truth. Jesus is a king who doesn't disappoint, ever. Jesus will never let you down. Jesus is a wonderful king. And he gave his life to make it possible for you and I to be part of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, perhaps at times we can take your son Jesus for granted and how truly wonderful that he is. Thank you that at every point in his life, at every moment, at every decision, all he wanted to do was obey you and live for your kingdom. 
Father, thank you that even in his death, he gave his life for us. Father, we may be disappointed with, with people, with church, with our leaders, with other Christians, with our family. But Father, thank you that with Jesus there are no disappointments. Thank you that he is only ever good. Thank you that he only does what is good for us. Please help us to marvel at him and appreciate him this morning. Amen.